Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Today I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Gunter Donner, our expert on the EU in Brussels and European politics. Welcome, Dr. Donner. Hello. Dr. Donner studied economics, history, and international relations in Great Britain, South Africa, and the USA. Since 1982, he has been advisor to the board of the Techniker Krankenkasse, the biggest not-for-profit health fund in Germany. Since 1993, he has been the deputy director of the Joint Association of German Social Insurers at the EU in Brussels. He is, in short, our EU insider for the transatlanticist. Today we have a number of topics to discuss. First, we have the elections in Italy. Second, the formation of a coalition government in Germany. Third, the latest in the Brexit negotiations. Fourth, the effect of Trump's tax cuts on the European economy, and lastly, Russian-EU relations. So, Dr. Donner, let's start with topic one, the election right. in Italy. What does it mean for Italy, the EU, and the U.S.? On March 4th, Italians went to the polls to choose a new government, but the results are confusing. The Five Star Movement won roughly 32% of the vote. Renzi's Democratic Party won about 19%, a loss of 6.5% from the last elections. The Northern League is at about 18%. Berlusconi's Forza Italia is at about 14%. And then there are other results as well. So, Dr. Donner, three questions. What do you make of these election results? What is the significance of these results for the EU? And what is the significance of the Italian elections in the US? Uh, right, to start with, this was a an electoral disaster um, known beforehand. Uh, to me, the the result, especially the catastrophic loss of the acting government, uh, came as no surprise. The question is, uh, now we have to, to face, and we have to face in quite a serious fashion, is are there any lessons we might learn from this? So what's it about? In a nutshell... What unites parties like Cinque Stelle or Five Stars, the revival of Berlusconi and the re-baptized uh, uh, former Liga Nord. Liga Nord formerly was a, a regional party which now extended its activity to almost the entire territory of Italy. They reappear because there was discontent, noticeable discontent within the Italian population the electorate was not satisfied with whatever came or was presented as a solution by the former and still acting government. That's one thing. The, the other is all three of these parties were, during the, elec the election campaign, trying to, to outwit uh, one another with promises of the most uh, um, astounding nature. 
there were universal income was somewhat between 700 or 800 euros a month per person huge social benefits to to whoever were discussed or offered uh, with no virtually no uh, route to reality Italian economic reality still is very very slow growth is abysmally slow the public debt load is dramatic as a consequence everything that is likely to further increase the public debt load could only ruin the country to an extent that it would then negatively affect the world economy probably and that was one thing shallow promises evidently many voters did they vote for these parties in order to punish the former government uh, then it's a what a, a, a vote of, of protest which is can be understood or do they really believe that these people would ever put into practice what they promised during the campaign then uh, the other way around they would be they'll be bitterly disappointed uh, so it'll be a mixture the thing is the acting the former now still acting government had very little to 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 counterweigh this development there was nothing they could come up with uh, the uh, job situation in italy is dramatic public finances is more or less in ruins the country is over indebted infrastructure investment remains slow to non-existent and the overall productivity of italy in spite of fine merchandise you could sell the general productivity remains low with catastrophic repercussions for the job situation especially for well-trained young people that all makes for this discontent and the um an atmosphere of protest and which then ultimately probably led to this result dr donner you paint a rather grim picture of italy mm-hmm. and i'm curious what this grim state of affairs means for the EU as a whole, and potentially, if you can move then into if it means anything to the US. Let's face it, the Italian economy to me is a very troublesome factor because people tend to talk lots of, quite a lot about, about Greece. Greek economic troubles are well well-established fact and have been one for the last almost the last decade. Whatever happens in Greece will never bring down the European economy. The Italian public debt load of some 2,300 billion euros cannot be supported, cannot be uh, reduced by whatever European institution or mechanism. There is no such thing to stem uh, the potential flood of an Italian disaster. On top of this comes a very weak situation of the Italian banks, holding between 300 to 450 billion of uh, dubious loans that probably will never be paid back. Uh, All this together adds momentum to the question what has to be done in order to prevent the Italian economy from breaking down. This could be very, very difficult for the Eurozone as a whole and of course, it could affect, it could declench a, a worldwide economic recession. This is really of a for certain momentum. We have to uh, look at it very closely. We will now see month, if not half year, terms of complete political uh, standstill in Italy. If it goes on like this, 
uh, governments will be of, an, of, a, of a very short-lived nature and one election will probably chase the other with catastrophic effects and uh, a, a further rise in populism. Uh, this means quite a lot for Europe, though the Europeans are only partly to blame. Let's face it, the Italian debt load is a homemade affair and has never been anything else. It's a homemade affair of spending far more than whatever you could get, you could gain. If you carry on, if you base your economy on such a on such an economic theory or strategy, in the end you will see you will have a problem, and not only you. I can very well understand that. Average Italian families are very hard hit by the crisis. There's poverty in Italy. Qualified young people don't find jobs. And if they do without family relations, they go with a ridiculous payment. You couldn't live on. Italy is a very expensive country. If ever you've been there, you know what life in Rome may cost. Large parts of the public sector are, have always been underfinanced. Look at the healthcare system in, in municipal hands. Look at the system of public education. All this can be circumvented because family relations in many Italian uh, um, families still exist and still outweigh and make good for um, non-existing state organization and state uh, state help. But more and more so, young people realize that the the government really doesn't help, and this is um, dangerous because then people may be ready to 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 let democracy go be this through uh, passivity in terms of I don't care anymore, this is not my job, that, let, 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 let them vote who, who believe in this. Or be this that they radicalise themselves. Cinque Stella Five Stars started as an whatever left-wing party. Now you can also see very racial, racially and even overtly racist comments from parts of this, of this party that could fit into the other ones. All this is a blend of discontent and uh, such topics as refugee crisis, that is just, this is just probably the, the last in a series of, of, of public failures to get to grips with the, with the refugee crisis. The refugee crisis in, a, in, in itself is not the, uh, not, not the cause of the Italian misery. It's one symptom. I like this phrase, blend of discontent, because I think we're seeing such a similar blend of discontent in a variety of countries, not just in Europe, but in the US as well. And if we discuss then this blend of discontent, moving on to our second topic, the Great Coalition in Germany, we'll see potentially that it was also an interesting blend of discontent that led to the alternative for Germany, the AfD party, taking huge percentages off the two main parties in Germany, the CDU, CSU, and the SPD. So for our American listeners, that's the traditional right, center-right, and center-left parties. The Alternative for Germany party went was once an economic mm. populist party and has become more and more, one might say, um, nationalist and racially motivated, just like the Five Star Movement in Italy. So turning to this strange brew of discontent in Germany. The German government has been reformed, and again, um, Chancellor Merkel will be leading Germany for the next five years as chancellor. So what are the ramifications, Dr. Donner, of another Merkel-led government for the future of the EU? Well, uh, the new Merkel government, after 
uh, an epochal standstill of uh, coalition negotiations, absolutely unknown in, in recent German history, comes at a time when it was a bit of the last-ditch defense of the existing established parties. As you will know, there was another coalition discussed before between the centre-right party, the Greens, the ecologists and the traditional market-friendly liberal party, which came to nothing. That would have been a, a clear start, a fresh start from a point where the German politics had never had never got to before. So the Grand Coalition, now in its uh, new um, edition, to me has both advantages in terms of the German government will be rather predictable for years to come, or as long as this coalition will survive. I'm not sure it it's not guaranteed that it will live to, it will live to see the end of the uh, of the term. But it, it adds predictability to Europe's strongest economy, thereby enormously reinforcing the essential issue of stability in economic and political terms. A Germany that, due to her strength and economic power, would have been unable to declare herself in the European concert of ideas for lack of a government, uh, qualified to do so, would have automatically paralysed European development and this one year before the European Parliament will be re-elected. So this is the positive thing. The critical thing is that it took the actors quite a while to, 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 get, it, to get it fixed and to get it nailed together. That was a marriage for less, lack of alternatives. I don't believe that it will solve the problem of the new extreme right party gaining ground in Germany, not for, for the time being. Because, um, let's face it, this party is now the strongest opposition force in Parliament. And as you such, mean the AfD? The AfD is now, this, by numbers, the strongest force and will, as a consequence, in public discussion in the media, uh, be presented as such. It will gain momentum and influence irrespective of the fact that without the refugee crisis it would no probably not not be existing anymore when the refugee crisis came to to show elements of slipping out of control this was the this was the great day of anti-migration populism at the same time of uh, weaknesses by the then uh, uh, Merkel government then in power. Clear failures, clear errors were made and corrected only after a certain period of time under pressure, if at all. Let's face it, um, the refugee crisis as such is not Germany's biggest problem. Our biggest problem, if we wish to continue to live the way we have hitherto been doing, is how can we how can we further enjoy our enormous economic growth, our collective wealth, and our fun well functioning social systems? We can pay for all this because our economy is booming. Whereas in other EU countries, the economy is not booming at all; it's it's degraded. And it, if it's degrading there and booming here, this is clearly not 
adding uh, harmony to the EU in general. Let's go back. The GroKo has a chance if they manage it in a cool way by not committing the error of revolutionizing out of a non-existing common denominator of interest. If they administer properly, if they only let the European, the German economy further boom without crippling it, if they stop dealing out, dishing out money in a strange fashion, and there are symptoms that this is about to happen, if they concentrate on core issues of making or paving the ground uh, for a future success of the German economy, that also uh, includes a future success of our uh, social welfare system, which is a guarantee, which is an established factor and a guarantee for the existence of democracy. So I have hope and I have a bit of doubt as far as the Groco is concerned, because to me the f- simple fact of how it came into existence was so marred by conflict and contrast, rather than let's throw in, let's go and do it hand in hand, both established fields in order to strengthen welfare and democracy. The, certainly the European project can be looked at with two separate faces. There is the face of discontent and the face of hope. Perhaps Germany shows us some hope, perhaps discontent. The same with Italy. But let's go to our third topic today, also an island of discontent, Brexit. Mm-hmm. So the latest in the Brexit negotiations, which is an absolutely critical development in world history, I would say. The Brexit negotiations continue to be stumbling along, and there are significant obstacles to be overcome. Mm-hmm. Of the many issues, one is proving to be quite problematic. What to do about the border between the Republic of Ireland, which will remain in the EU, and Northern Ireland, which presumably will not. Dr. Donner, have you heard anything in Brussels? Is there a workable solution to this Irish puzzle? The, the Brexit as such is a thing to Brits and non-Brits both will come to regret bitterly. The nonsense was the referendum on, on an issue. Voters had not, they didn't have a chance to, to overlook the complexity of the problem. They were asked for yes and no. Well, that's one thing, but it, the clock can't be turned back. Britain will leave the EU the core issue, of course, is the the Irish border. Uh, to me, the only solution that can be made workable within the given framework of European legislation is a hard border. There is no way around it. Because if it's no longer part of the EU, it's not only part of the EU, it's, it's not longer part of Schengen. It's never been part of Schengen. So you have an exterior border through the Irish island uh, that, of course, will fuel or refuel old Irish difficulties from the past. It will also be difficult to explain for the British Prime Minister because one of her tolerating coalition partners is the, uh, the, the Ulster Loyalists. They still they seem not to like it because it clearly entails draw- economic drawbacks galore for Northern Ireland and for the Republic. But the idea of creating an exemption for European for European legislation just in this one single case will never materialise. I have no, no trust in this. So they will have their whatever uh, uh, 
hard border with controls and checks and whatever, uh, which clearly will add to the problems of the Brexit issue. Whether or not they will arrive at a workable solution, I've lost most confidence in this. The Norwegian model wouldn't work because why should the EU grant the privileges of the European economic area to, to, to Britain? Britain was keen on leaving. Britain decided to leave and you can't eat your pudding and have it. So you either leave or you stay. Of course, the EU had committed errors that ultimately have led to the to the uh, disillusionment with the European idea uh, on the British on the British Isles. I, I believe in a rather tough Brexit then, and uh, the tough Brexit should not make us forget that the EU, as such, could have probably done more to prevent the Brexit from or the referendum from ever happening. If we look at the referendum's history, it will enter British history as probably one of the greatest calamities ever uh, self-imposed. If you wish to, 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 to change the behaviour patterns of a club you are a member of, leaving it, slamming the door behind you, leaves you outside and the club in its state before the whole thing started and you are without any influence. We don't know the outcome. Ten years hence, we may be able to tell, or Brits will be able to tell, have we benefited from this or did we lose? Okay, let's move on from Brexit and the Irish puzzle to a topic on the other side of the Atlantic, Trump's tax reform. Donald Trump announced sweeping tax reforms at the end of 2017. The estimates vary, but most of the figures I have seen are that the cuts are between one and a half and two point three trillion dollars. What do you think about Trump's tax reform, and how is it affecting the economies in the U.S. and the EU? And I only mention this because we've spoken in the past, and you seem to have a very interesting argument about what uh, Trump's tax reforms will be doing to European economies. Well. Uh, the tax reform he introduced to me has to be looked at in a quite a different angle, different perspective, A, from within the US, uh, given the present state of affairs of infrastructure, the trade balance of the US, uh, the debt situation and all this. And the other is, will the US, as a competitor to other industrialized areas of the world, above all to Europe, will they put Europe and Europe's economies under pressure? Uh, the latter they clearly will. As you see, from looking from without the US, from taking account of the EU-European EU, perspective, the uh, uh, US tax cuts present uh, a certain danger not to be neglected. Already have billions of industrial capital re-entered America. But the fact is that America, for certain huge investing bodies, has enhanced her attractiveness. And Europe, on the contrary, looks rather bleak. There is talk in France about a lack of investment. No, no, no wonder if you look at French bureaucracy, French, the French tax system and the French legal system for, for an investor, 
you might think twice before you invest your billions there. You might go elsewhere. For the European competitors, this is bad news because Europe A has a higher taxation uh, than the US. B, uh, a huge variety of tax and social systems to be observed by investors. Uh, we have the Irish question un unsettled with very extremely low uh, taxation limits for, for, for industrial investors, much to the discontent of, of the EU partners. The other question is, will Britain follow suit? Will Britain, uh, in her further role as an ex-EU member state and now a competitor on the doorstep, will Britain copy the Trump model by, in order to attract investors, uh, not only in, in London housing, but in, uh, in productivity? And what, how could Europe react? There are interests and there are voices within the European left to, to tax and to further tax economic and financial transactions. A thing that could only, in, under these circumstances, be considered to be sheer venom for the EU economy, clearly in need of less than more regulations, in, if they wish to remain competitive, as a, an area for investment from abroad. On the other hand, exporting nations, and there you have to, to, to connect the Trump uh, discussion on, on import duties uh, uh, for certain products, now a bit removed from the table for the time being, could, may reappear any given time. This is unpredictable. You're talking about the proposed I am steel indeed. tariffs that he yes, said his allies... indeed. This may stim stimulate, and I think that would be quite logically in, in line with his creating more jobs in America, German manufacturers, for instance, to invest on spot in America, to increase their productivity there uh, with uh, clearly negative consequences for the German labour market. Uh, to me, it is very difficult to, to comprehend. If I were an American, I'd be strictly against these tax uh, reductions because America needs domestic public investment in infrastructure. The absence of a healthcare system worth while its name is a disaster. Dr. Donner will have a discussion, I think, in the future about the U.S. healthcare system compared to Europe, but you make a fine point. I think it's a complicated and lengthy subject to discuss. But let's move on from the Trump tax cuts to the our fifth and final subject for today, which is Russia-EU relations. Mm. There's so much to discuss, so much has happened this March. Putin was re-elected, we have the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the poisoning in Salisbury, ongoing issues with Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline between Russia and the EU. So, a lot has happened. It's highly problematic. Uh, the whole thing is, one of the cornerstones of diplomacy throughout history has been you have to make diplomacy with the people in power you wish to deal with. What you can't do is you cannot wait until they they have changed to, to an effect that you like them and you wish to copy them. Russia remains an important factor, probably a far more important factor business-wise, in, in investment-wise and security-wise for Europe than for the US. I think, and this is my personal conviction, that uh, if you 
consider Russia as a major economic partner of the EU, and, and Russia's clearly been that in the past. Look at the where the EU derives its energy from. These relations are of a very subtle nature and should be dealt with in a more than shrewd manner. That's not been carried out in the past like this. We do sanctions not knowing will they actually hurt Mr. Putin or will they only hurt ourselves. And they don't bring anything. They have ne- I haven't seen any change in Ukraine, neither a return to Minsk nor whatever. What we need to do is uh, for a, I think in order to touch a great number of global global issues of our present day is to redefine European and Russian relations as well as Russian and American relations because many world problems will never be solved without a, a direct dialogue at on an equal footing between these blocks. If you convince Mr. Putin that he's inferior to you because his the number of his aircraft carriers is and, and the one he has is ridiculous, uh, it won't help. It will only provoke him to do more. There is a clear security aspect in it. Many European member states see the growing political and diplomatic and military pressure of Russian presence differently to Germany. A Latvian will have an, an, a completely different idea, as will a Pole, a different idea of the Putin importance than a German. So uh, I think this contains many very serious issues. The only solution can be never to cut ties for a diplomatic exchange, be this a very small step, almost tiptoeing approach to whatever compromise. And I think given the fact that um, the transatlantic security architecture as such been uh, illuminated in a different fashion than it was a solid rock 10 years ago. It's no longer the case. So what we need is we have to redefine our security demands, our security wishes and preferences. It is clear that Europe has to, to do more and cannot only rely on America that they will uh, bear the brunt of whatever crisis. But there is there is a contradiction there is a contradiction in European policy making. On the one hand, people are in favour of a reinforced European defence force. At the same time, Europe is losing one of its two nuclear powers. The UK will move out; it remains in NATO, but it will not be part of the EU defence community. The role of France is, in this at least, quite unpredictable. I could have, I could have imagined personally. A generous offer by uh, Mr. Mr. Macron that now he, as the sole remaining nuclear power in Europe, could offer more in order to to add to 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 stim to stimulate to stimulate European defensive uh, measures. Not in order to prepare for war. That's nonsense. But in order to make the European stance more credible. Nothing of this ha- has come forward. Mr. Macron talks about a new Europe in rather in rather undefined phrases. Then America comes and asks us for more money for defence. A European defence architecture worthwhile its name clearly would exceed the 2% of the national budget in expenses by far. 
this has never been discussed. It sounds so a un-American. It sounds so non-world powerly. It sounds so cosy, but it's very expensive. And I mean, it's complete, completely useless unless it's a credible defense. And for the credible defense, like it or not, you need strength. Any diplomacy with Russia should be carried out fully respecting Russia's point of view as a world power and not as a declassed world power. But it has also to, to, to put a firm feet on, uh, firmly our feet on the ground that we stand for something independent, democratic, far more democratic than the Kremlin uh, uh, elections, and, but we are willing to cooperate. And this requires defensive activity, and this requires, at the same time, the acceptance that the Russian system is different, but they have to be our partner because we cannot choose our friends and just talk to just talk to your friends. In the end, isolates you completely. Indeed, a pragmatic approach to most of these problems seems to be a sensible way of moving forward. I'm sure in the next month we'll have some more developments on Italy. Perhaps there will be some more developments in the Great Co- the Grand Coalition. Certainly there will be more developments in the Brexit negotiations. We'll hear more from Trump in Washington, D.C., and most certainly there will be more interesting aspects of the Russian-Europe relation to discuss next month. So until then, thank you, Dr. Donner, our EU insider, for your wonderful discussion, and I look forward to talking to you next month. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.